This is Kelsey Leonard, and you're listening to Valiantly Spoken. Today I'm talking with Sandy Scott, class of 1969, about her career in the U.S. Air Force and what it was like being one of the first women allowed to be a pilot. So tell us how you got into the Air Force after your time at SMVA. Well, uh, it was, Vietnam was going on. And uh, there were actually, out of my 44, I think there were 44 of us, four of us thought about going into the service. And um, the other three girls, I believe, all enlisted right away. And I thought I'd better go to college first. And so I uh, applied to several colleges and I was accepted to Creighton, which I was excited about, but it was very expensive and it cost a lot to get there. So I... uh, decided to go to OSU and um, I, when I got to OSU, I went ahead and took the test to go ahead and to go into the Air Force. And so I was ready to do that. And then I also checked because they had an ROTC program at Oregon State, but it wasn't open to women. So I said, well, okay. In fact, um, this is kind of tells the time. There was a special program uh, that was called Angel Flight, which uh, when I went to the Air Force ROTC, they said, we have Angel Flight. And I said, well, what's that? And they said, it's a program in which um, girls come and bring cookies and things like that when we're out doing bivouacs. And I went, oh, okay. That's not really what I want to do. <laughs> um, <I don't laughs> and so it, Angel Flight also had a drill team and they did other things, but that was how it was explained to me the first time. Uh, So while I was at school, I joined the rifle team because my dad had taught me how to shoot. And there weren't any other women on the rifle team either. Uh, Then uh, at, at the end of the first year, I decided maybe I better go into the service now. No, I'll try it one more semester. So I went back and the second semester while I was sitting at the at a table in the Memorial Union talking about people and asking them to come and join the rifle club, the booth next to me was from the Air Force ROTC. And so they, uh, so I'm looking at these guys, they said, well, you ought to come join ROTC. And I said, I tried that last year. No, that's not what I want to do. And they said, no, 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 we've opened it up this year. So I looked at the person that was in the booth with me and I said, would you please watch the booth? I walked on over, ran, I literally ran over to the Memorial Union because I was supposed to be manning this booth and uh, signed up to take ROTC class. And the rest was kind of just like history. And did you go directly from ROTC into the Air Force? I did. You get your commission at the end, when you get your uh, degree, you also usually get your commission I did end up going an extra semester, but that was kind of nice because I also got an extra semester of a scholarship. So it all worked out very well. Um, and I went right into the Air Force and the Air Force was in, it was in a pretty big change right then because um, it was, they didn't have very many women. It was less than I think 1%, uh, which I'm just learning a lot more about now. Um, and I was in that first class of ROTC. I went through the summer camp with the first class that went through the summer camp and then just was able to go into the Air Force. They brought me in as a weapons controller, 
which was a field that had just opened up to women. Uh, previous to that, women were pretty much held as secretaries, nurses, uh, but in the early 70s, the late 69s there, they were coming up and they were letting them be mechanics. They were putting them into the missile program and then as the weapons controllers. So I was, uh, I was selected to be a weapons controller, most likely because my husband was in the army and they could sign us to, they signed me to Bergstrom, uh, which was in Austin, Texas, and they put him at the biggest army base in the world at Fort Hood. So they were 70 miles apart. So we lived in the middle and each of us drove 70 miles a day, 35 miles each way. So what was it like being a part of the Air Force right when it was starting to allow women to have those positions? I, I guess I didn't see it as that as such right then as this last couple of months as they did the dedication for us as part of the trailblazers it's begin to sink in a little bit more how that, that we really were trailblazers i i didn't ever think of it as being that way beforehand um it was um I don't even know how to how to say it. It was just kind of like, uh, yeah, it, it, it was just, I was just doing what I got to do. And I think uh, one of the things that was brought up is that you just, there, there comes a time in life when you just have to be prepared for anything. And then the timing will happen and you can't do anything about the timing. And that's kind of, uh, that, I just call it a God thing. Uh, God knows when the timing has to be good. And, and I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. And, and he put me there. So for whatever reason it was, um, I was able to uh, start this program and to be in the Air Force. When I was at, when I got to my first base, uh, my husband was uh, still doing his army stuff, and so we we weren't stationed right away together. He uh, and there were, I think, four female officers on the whole base. Um, and I know that there was only one other second lieutenant. There was a captain. And there just weren't a whole lot of us. So I didn't have female friends or other even. I didn't even have female uh, co-workers. I was usually the only person in, in the unit or whatever like that. So that made it kind of interesting. Um, let's see. Uh, so... I was there, it, they had just made the, the squadron that I'd been assigned to had just become a test squadron. So I really didn't have a job and they didn't know what to do with me. And uh, so I did a lot of gopher jobs, which is what second lieutenants do anyway. But I learned a lot, and, but I didn't learn anything about being a weapons controller because I had nothing to control. And then after a year, the Air Force very wisely sends weapons controllers remote because that's where most of the job is being done. As a weapons controller, what you're actually doing is you're controlling aircraft and bringing them to do an intercept on another aircraft. So my second year in the Air Force, I was sent to Alaska and at, to King Salmon. They did not have any women there before either. There were two of us there, though. That was more than I had ever had before. And, yeah, and uh, there were two officers, and then we had a couple of enlisted that actually came up while we were there. And our job was to guard the skies of America 
uh, and to make sure that particularly the Russians did not uh, invade our territory, uh, but also any other enemies that want to come this way. From uh, there, I got to meet uh, several of the pilots, the pilots that I was actually controlling. And um, I would debrief with them after we'd have a mission. They would swap out every week. And so when they swapped out, we'd, we'd do a debrief face-to-face -face and I'd get to know them. And it was one of them that actually brought in a newspaper article that said they're letting women into pilot training. And it was actually the guys that I was controlling that were the ones that helped me fill out my application to get all the paperwork. Cause I was actually out at King Salmon. The only way to get there is by boat or by plane. And um, I didn't have any way to go anywhere. So they would, the, one of the guys brought in a camera. He took my official photo. We followed directions. Kind of like you take a passport photo now. They, uh, also just gathered the other information that I needed from uh, the headquarters, which is in Elmendorf. So they helped me put my package together, they put it in and I was accepted. The Air Force actually uh, had the plan to have 20 of us and I was selected in that first group of 20. They divided us into 10 and 10 of us went through pilot training at Williams Air Force Base, which is um, just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. It's presently been closed uh, but it was it was a big training base at that time and that's where they put us through and they put us through the 10 women along with I think about 30 30 some uh, male cadets that had just been commissioned from the Air Force Academy so uh, that was the way that they chose to integrate us into the system um, and it was a year of training a um, lot of a lot of first, a lot of things that I never really considered as first or whatever. It was just doing whatever we had to do. Um, some of the things you had to do is you had to get your hair cut. You know? We knew that they would have to do that, but they said, no, no, you can't just wear it up in a bun. You have to actually uh, get a cut. So there were just those moments when you go, oh, what the heck? <laughs> but, but you just kind of go with the flow. Uh, we learned how to properly jump out of airplanes uh, in the event that we would need to. Uh, we learned, we parasailed, um, we, uh, which was a, an adventure that was different because the instructors who are, were used to instructing other men, men weigh a lot more than women do. So when we parasailed, we went pretty high. <laughs> uh, we went a lot higher than the guys got to go. So that was kind of fun, to just, just realizing some of those differences. Uh, from, um, then we went to, at, Upon graduation, the Air Force had to decide where to put us, and there were still limitations that women could not go into combat. So we were pretty much restricted to uh, just a few airplanes. We were able to go and to be instructors. That would be an acceptable job. So a couple of the women got to fly in the T-37s and the T-38s as instructors. Um, the other place where we were able to go was to Air Transport Command. And they hadn't quite figured out how they were going to keep that out of combat, but we weren't in combat right then because you know, Vietnam was um, over. So uh, they, they, we had women that were flying the C-9s and the 141s and also the 130. They had, uh, one of my classmates got to go to the Weather 130, which was pretty cool because she'd been their officer just barely uh, and before she was selected. 
and so that was pretty exciting for her. Um, and then the last place that we got to go was to Strategic Air Command. And Strategic Air Command are the ones that guarded the skies, and we flew the KC-135 in support of the fighters and also the bombers because those airplanes did not have the capability to get where they needed to go without being able to refuel in the air. And the KC-135 is actually the airplane that refueled them in the air. Uh, got to, so my first assignment, my husband and I were stationed at Mather Air Force Base, which is in uh, Sacramento, California. From uh, there, I sat alert. And uh, this was now in the late 70s, and uh, the Cold War was still very much going on. And so to sit alert meant that we had 24-hour um, duty available to, and for seven days at a time. So we'd go and sit at the alert facility. We'd be there seven days at a time with our crew. Our airplanes were ready to take off at a moment's notice and to uh, provide uh, the fuel for the B-52s or whatever. You usually had three days off and then you'd go back into the office and then you'd do it all over again in, in so you did it about every three weeks. Um, during that time, you would train uh, to fly a little bit. We did not. We did not have a lot of high flying hours, uh, just because we were sitting alert for that seven days out of a time. But we did then uh, support aircraft that were going overseas and doing, um, let's see, uh, exercises and uh, other. They just needed to move aircraft, so we would be able to help with that. So as a crew, I was able to go to Guam, the Philippines. Uh, I went to um, Saragossa, Spain. I went to England. And normally when we went to some place, we would stay there about 30 days, and we would operate out of that location. Um, and and we would provide the services that, that we needed, and then we would head back home. But it was, a, it was a great time for a crew. You got to see a lot because you're on the ground. Uh, and uh, so I got to do some uh, pretty exciting things just with the people in the local area, which was really nice. Um, from after I was at uh, in SAC for three years, my husband and I needed an assignment. We're going, now where do we get to go? And um, he actually transferred to the Air Force while I was while I was in pilot training. So now we were both in the Air Force, so it was a little bit easier to get our assignments together, but it still wasn't a piece of cake. Uh, so uh, we applied for a position at the Air Force Academy. They had opened up the academy the same time that they had uh, opened up pilot training for us, to women. And uh, so they wanted some role models at the academy. Uh, particularly in the flying field. So I was stationed back at the academy and my husband was stationed at Space Command, which was in Colorado Springs. So we were at two different bases again, but uh, at least we were living in the same house. That was At the academy, I was a air officer commanding, which is an AOC, and they work directly with the cadets. It's kind of, you have a group of 40 cadets and then they have a, an officer that works with them. I was an, uh, an associate air officer commanding, and then I got to work at the airfield, uh, which was an absolutely wonderful job. At the airfield, it meant that I got to fly a different airplane 
the UV-18, which was the airplane that um, actually held and carried the parachutist. Uh, the Academy has a parachute team and they compete uh, with various other um, colleges and, and other competitions because it is a part of the flying and they try to get the cadets to see as much as they can. The Academy also has a, is part of their uh, airmanship program. They have a soaring program so that each cadet actually has the opportunity to go up and just solo a sailplane. Uh, and they found that to be very, very helpful uh, for those that went on to pilot training, particularly the way that the program is set up is that the cadets become the instructors. So you go through the program at the end of your freshman year, as you're becoming a sophomore, you'll go through the, the soaring program, or you can go through the parachute program. You can go through these various programs during your summer school, and then you can elect if if you're not a football player or another uh, team or anything like that you can elect to be an instructor and as a cadet so now they're usually 18 19 years old uh, they're then becoming instructors and they follow back the last two years of of their time at the academy instructors in those uh, areas so as an instructor i i was an instructor for soaring but most of the instruction was actually done by the senior cadets. So our, our place was more to instruct them, to keep them safe, to, to do it in the Air Force way, because we, did, we didn't have a big cadre of uh, officers. There's about uh, 15 of us, and so we had all been pilots in something else, in the basic airplanes. They also had a T-41 program in which all those cadets that were actually going into pilot training would go through the T-41 program. So they had a chance to either to soar, to fly in some way, uh, which I think gave them a good basis. It also gave them a good basis for leadership and to just be prepared for whatever they were going to be given at any time. So what was it like for you having gone through not having any women pilot instructors and then being able to be there for other women? Um, well, there weren't that many women cadets was one of the things but it was nice uh i i tried to to be a good mentor uh and to also really there were a lot of issues that people hadn't even looked at and i did not i had never had another female mentor so it was kind of like okay i think that it I, I probably have to say that i didn't know how important it really could be uh having gone to St. Mary's and having only females there, um, it, it, I don't know that the sex really made a difference to me. It was kind of like, I'm working with this person and we're going to get the job done. And I, I had not, and that's probably still something that to today, I, I don't have that focus on, being able to do it because you're a female or being able to do it because you're a male. It just, you do it because you're a person and you have that ability to do it. So in your first email, you mentioned watching hidden figures and chuckling at all of the struggles of that movie. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that related to your experience? I liked that because it was the same time frame, And um, 
it, it got down to the very basics. I mean, in one of the things that I did share with you uh, earlier was about how uh, one of the lead characters, she just needed to go to the bathroom. And as a black woman, there were no bathrooms around. Well, there weren't bathrooms around for women, period, in the Air Force. And so when they did the, when I went to sit alert, I got to share the bathroom with 42 guys, or probably up to 100 and some. And it was just a big, huge bathroom. And so I had to put a note on the door uh, that said female using it. And, and so, I, you know, you don't want to do that during the time of the day. So I usually took my showers uh, at odd hours, which wasn't a big deal. I had already done that uh, when I was up in Alaska. Uh, Alaska, we had separate rooms as officers, but there was like a sauna. And uh, they said, how are we going to do the sauna? I said, you put a note on the door. What's the problem? I had, I had been a lifeguard and we had saunas at our swimming pool. And I said, are you wear a suit? And if you don't want to wear a suit, then you just, you know, if you're going to go naked in the sauna, then you just put a note on the door outside. It, it, but it, it caused a lot of people to think a lot and it made them go, well, that's not, I can't do it the way that I wanted to do it. You know, I want to just be able to walk in the sauna when I want to walk into the sauna. But can I do that? And I go, well, I guess you can, but I can too. And, <laughs> and so uh, if we don't want to embarrass each other, then maybe we ought to come up with a plan. And so it, I, didn't, I didn't look at a lot of those things as big adversarial. They may have caused a little bit of distress for a moment, but I was, I was pretty naive on how distressed that really got people. I'm sure that it did uh, to this day. Uh, I'm sure that there were a lot of people that thought it was much more distressing that there were women uh, that were in the cockpit and that we were doing things. Um, but those, those were realities. And there have been many times, in fact, there was a general that had said to me once when I uh, had the opportunity to escort him for several days. And he said, you, now you've been, you." you could always come to space command because he had been associated with space because of my weapons controller time. But he said, you know, your life as a woman in the air force is going to be a lot like my, my friend who is a, who was also a general that was black. And he said, you know, he walks into a room and somebody may make an off comment or just make a comment and you're not sure you have no way of knowing if they're making the comment because they're just jerks or if they're making the comment because they hold a grudge or they have a prejudice or there you and you have to make those judgments constantly and that's not something that i have to do because if somebody makes that kind of comment to me as as a white male um person i can just say they're jerks you know so it must feel really nice to have accomplished so many firsts in the Air Force and made a path for many other women to do the same thing that you were able to do. I truly did not think of myself as a trailblazer. I have had people call me pioneer. Uh, and it's very nice now to say that I was with a group of women. And I'm uh, very pleased that the Air Force chose to do it that way, even though uh, once we were out of pilot training, we all went our separate ways and we never even saw each other until uh, this last couple of years. Um, it, it gave us some of that support system that, uh, that was really good. And I wish that 
And looking back now, uh, if I had any advice to give to people, I would definitely say those support systems are the most important in the world. And it doesn't make any difference. You know, the sex doesn't make any difference to you. You just need to maintain those friendships, those uh, acquaintances for whatever reason. And that I've always known because I had several of my classmates from high school that I kept in touch with. Not that many, but several of them. And they were, even though we didn't keep tabs of each other, we went different ways, we were still there to support each other in, in any way that we might have been able to. And I think that that, as I get older, it, it just becomes more and more um, obvious that it's not about what you did or how you did it. It's, it's about the people that you know and that got to know you and how you share that, your life with them. If there's one thing that you would want everyone to know based on your experience, what would it be? I said, you got to be prepared. You got to perform the best that you can. You have to be persistent and not quit uh, and just keep at it. But I think the most important one I say for last, and that's prayer. Because the prayer, you pray because you have faith. Pray because you have hope. And um, that's what has really... Uh, kept kept me going and it was the faith that I uh, got before I even got to St. Mary's uh, but just being able to I think uh, the prayer kind of put it all together any last words of wisdom for us one of the things that uh, by being in the Air Force and then particularly by being able to fly is that one of the very important things that they started saying in the late 70s when you get on an airplane is the stewardesses or the flight attendants would get up and they'd say, okay, we're now preparing for takeoff. And in the event that we have an emergency, your mask is going to come down. And when your mask comes down, and they didn't do this at first, you know, they said, put your mask on. But now if when you go on a flight, well, now it's all done by the, the handy dandy little recording they would very carefully say, put your mask on first. Because if you don't put your mask on, you can't help anybody else. And uh, I think that that is one of the most wonderful things that we need to do. We need to take care of ourselves. Uh, and we can do that by just, you know, monitoring how, how, how our attitude is and realizing that there are the things that we can't control. We can control how prepared we are or not prepared. We can control our performance and if we're going to give it our all or not. We can control uh, being persistent and staying after. We can control if we're going to pray. But there's those things that we just don't get to control, that they're all in God's hands. And so uh, we have to take care of who we are so that we can help uh, somebody else and be able to do that. Thank you so much for your time today, Sandy. We really enjoyed hearing your story. As always, Valiantly Spoken is sponsored by your Alumni Advisory Committee. We'll see you next time.